Amen. Well, if you would, turn to Ruth chapter 4 in your Bibles this morning. Ruth chapter 4 as we come now uh, to the last chapter in this book that we've been walking through uh, over the last month or so. If you've been with us in our study of Ruth, you know that we've been uh, looking at how we see the difference between walking by faith and walking by sight as we walk through the pages of Ruth together. And so we saw there in chapter 1 how a walking by sight leads us down a path of disobedience and how God will not bless our disobedience. We saw in chapter 2 there how that there's a turn in Ruth's heart to the Lord. There is faithfulness and a walk of faith. And we talked about how that walk of faith requires us to take steps of faith. It requires us to act in faith. And then last Lord's Day we looked at Ruth 3 where we learn that there's times we need to take steps of faith and there's times we need to just be still and trust in the Lord and be careful that we don't run ahead of God and, and try to take control of things. And so we see when, when we're given this instruction to walk by faith, there can be a tension there. Are we supposed to do something? Are we supposed to wait? And what that comes down to is understanding how to discern the work of God and how to trust in God as we walk by faith. And I pray that becomes even more clear as we come now to Ruth chapter 4. Uh, we are at a point in this story where uh, Ruth and Boaz now have a plan. Boaz is intent on redeeming Ruth, on marrying Ruth, but before he can, uh, he needs to go and clear things at the city gate with another who has the right of redemption. And we'll talk more about that as we walk through this text together. So uh, today and next Lord's Day, we're going to look at this last chapter. Today we're going to go through verse 12. So if you're able to, if you would stand out of reverence for God's Word. As I read for us, Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. This is what the inspired Word of God says. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one threw off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he threw off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. 
Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. If you will, pray with me. Father, we have gathered to worship, we have gathered to learn, and we come now to this last chapter in Ruth's story. Father, as we look to this chapter and as we look to what it means for Boaz to redeem Ruth, I pray that You would help us to see the greater story that's being told. The story of Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer. I pray that all glory and dominion that belong to Him will be echoed as we seek to glorify Him now and read Your Word and study Your Word and trust Your Word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. A lot of us have a, a routine in our house. In our house, the routine at night for our children is often they will read themselves to sleep. They... They love to read books. And this really goes back to before they could read, because before they could read, we would read to them. Now I say we would read to them. Uh, oftentimes their mother, Sandy, would read to them. Uh, I would usually take shortcuts and just tell them stories. And how long the story was depended on how tired I might be. So uh, there were times when I'd get there to their bed and tuck them in. Oh, Daddy, we want a story. And Oh, Daddy's tired. Well, we want a story. Okay, once upon a time, some stuff happened in the end. Well, they didn't settle for that. And so I would have to go back. And, and usually I would make up stories. Sometimes I'd tell familiar tales. But other times I'd tell them stories about uh, the valiant King Richard who ruled his land with his full head of hair. And uh, what a wonderful king he was. And we'd talk about Prince Parker and the princesses, Vivian, Anna Claire, and Caroline. And, and I try to come up with all these fascinating details and these stories I would tell them. Maybe you've done something like that as well. Uh, but I'm guessing for you, and I know for me, that we probably never started a story by saying, once upon a time, there were three funerals. Now, that's not really an exciting story to tell, or at least it doesn't seem to be at first. And yet, that's exactly how God introduces us to this story in Ruth chapter 1. It starts off with a, a pretty bleak picture. It's a time of famine. There is a barren land. There are barren wombs. It is a time of death. There are funerals. Chapter 1 ends with a woman who has lost her husband and her sons, bitter towards God, just wanting to go back to her home and die. And yet we see as the story unfolds that there's so much more that is to come. God has taken us from Ruth chapter 1 to Ruth chapter 4 through this story that's led us from famine to fullness. 
From hopelessness to hope, from faithlessness to faith. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary, summarized it this way. He said, the book of Ruth opens with three funerals, but closes with a wedding. There's a good deal of weeping recorded in the first chapter, but the last chapter records an overflowing joy in the little town of Bethlehem. And then he quotes Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. And then Wearsby says this, Not all of life's stories have this kind of happy ending, but this little book reminds us that for the Christian, God still writes the last chapter. As we come to this last chapter of Ruth, we are reminded that that God is the author of this story. And that God, through this story, is helping us even today to learn what it means to walk by faith and not walk by sight. That's been our theme throughout our study. That'll be our theme today as we continue in this text. So if you'll look with me there at chapter 4, we'll begin with that first point in your outline. How do we walk by faith? We trust that God's plan is better than our plan. We place our trust, our faith, our hope in the plans of God, understanding that His plans are greater. His plans are better. So as we've come to Ruth, we've started each chapter almost like a different scene. There's a different setting. Ruth chapter 1 starts there in the fields of Moab. There's a famine in the land, and so Elimelech has led his family out to this wilderness place, this wicked place to the fields of Moab. Then we get to chapter 2, and now we're in the fields of Bethlehem. Uh, Ruth has come back with Naomi, and and now they're back in the land of promise, and they're in this place where God is going to provide for them, specifically through Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. And so then we come to chapter 3, and now we're at the threshing floor. We're outside of the city where the harvest has come in, and and that grain there is is being heaped in piles. And and as it's being heaped in piles, the, the owner of the grain, Boaz, he stays the night there. And we looked last Lord's Day at this rather awkward scene, and yet in the midst of it, we saw God's provision between these two faithful people. And so now we come to chapter 4, and our scene is a gate. Boaz has gone to the gate outside of the city. This would have been the, the entrance into the city. Uh, this was a, an opening there in the city wall where business was transacted. Yeah, if you picture in our modern context a town hall, a, a courthouse, all the things that take place is there, well, this would happen at the gate. And so Boaz went to the gate because Boaz had a plan. Plans were made at the gate. Plans were finalized at the gate. Things were decided on at the gate. Understanding that gives us a bit more insight to what Jesus is saying, I believe, in Matthew 16, verse 18, where he is speaking to Peter and the disciples about the church that he will build. He says there, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, what Jesus is saying there is all the plans, all all the schemes, all the things that the devil has decided to do, none of that will prevail against my church. Plans were made at the gates. Jesus says those plans will fail. But here we have Boaz coming up with a plan that that he hopes is going to succeed. And so the plan is this. He's had this conversation already with Ruth where Ruth has requested for Boaz to be her redeemer. 
And we've talked about this culturally, contextually, that the Redeemer is the one who would marry the widow who was childless. He was a near male relative who would marry her, and essentially he's stepping in the place of the one who died so that that land stays in that family. If they were to have a son, that son then would ultimately inherit that land. And so the, the Redeemer was stepping in to make sure his dead relative's name did not die, that his land was not lost that his name was not removed from the book of that city. And so here, Boaz has gone to the gate because he's already told Ruth there's another one who's closer than him, another one who's nearer than him, who has the right of redemption. So we pick up there in verse 1. And behold, the Redeemer of who Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz turned aside, excuse me, said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. Now, we hear that word friend in the English, and that can mean very different things. If we call somebody a friend, that can be a term of, of endearance, somebody we know well, they're my friend. Or we can kind of use the friend word like we use a brother and sister in the Baptist church. We don't remember somebody's name. <laughs> hey, brother, hey, sister, hey, friend. But when you translate this word, go back to the Hebrew, you find that it means something very different. It, it literally means so-and-so. <laughs> That we don't know what the name is. The writer here is almost intentionally wanting us to know the name of the Redeemer is not significant. Mr. So-and-so. Which is interesting as we get into the story and you realize that, that this man doesn't take the right of redemption because he wants to protect his name. And we don't even know what his name is now. His name is lost in the books of history. And so Boaz presents this situation to Mr. So-and-so. They sit down with ten elders. This was so official business could take place. This was a transaction that was going to happen. So he calls them together so they could be witnesses. And then he tells Mr. So-and-so, this friend, verse 3, and Naomi is selling a parcel of land that belonged to Elimelech. Now this is our first introduction to any mention of Elimelech owning land, although we could infer that. The, the males and the families, they, they would have been property owners here. They would have owned land. We, we don't know really the condition of this land. Uh, we could speculate that during the time Elimelech lived there in Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, that there was a time of famine, and so this land probably didn't produce anything. It could have been that they were so uh, in need that they became indebted to others and gave over the rights to their land. They wouldn't have sold it, but essentially they would have leased it out to someone until their debt was paid or until the year of Jubilee. God had set up in His economy of His people this year of Jubilee that every seven years their debts were canceled out. And so Elimelech had this land. Maybe he was indebted and put this land up uh, to others for their use maybe that year jubilee cleared that but whatever the case the chances are this land wasn't really producing much and in fact when naomi and ruth come back we see very clearly uh, naomi doesn't tell ruth well we'll go to elimelech's land no she goes to another field a neighboring field the field of boaz in order to glean from the harvest and so all we know is that naomi is now going to sell this land this would have been a practice through which this land stayed in the family. Uh, this was part of the redemption law that God gave that a, a near male relative could, could buy this land. And so as he is explaining all of this to the Redeemer, notice verse 4, the Redeemer says, okay, I'll take it. 
I mean, chances are this is someone who already has their own land, their own wealth. They're looking at this as an opportunity just to add to that. They're probably thinking, well, this land hasn't produced much, but I can get a great deal on it. I'll take the land. But then Boaz goes on to tell them what comes with the land. You see, in these laws of redemption that God had given His people, we've talked about how there was this redemption involved in the widow. And apparently in this context, in this case, they've kind of blended some of these things together. So Boaz says, well, if you are to buy this property, then you're also responsible to be the redeemer for Ruth. Now that means his responsibility would have been to seek to have a child with Ruth. And were he able to have a male child with Ruth, that child would have been the one to take that property and so essentially he's not really gaining anything out of that deal in fact here it seems that he's skeptical that he might lose something in this deal he likely already has a family he already has children he's he's worried about how their inheritance his inheritance might be threatened by bringing this marriage in and and then you add to that who it is he's being told he'll need to marry now this is ruth a ruth's a moabite The Moabites were wicked people. In fact, he's probably already heard about what happened the last time an Israelite married Ruth. He died. And she's barren. She can't have children. And so he's looking at this situation, and by sight, everything about it says, go the other way. (laughs) Don't redeem this woman. She's not even an Israelite. She's barren. She's from Moab. And if she is able to have children, then you're going to threaten your inheritance and what you pass on to your own children. And so I think the indication here is that Mr. So-and-so, this Redeemer, is walking entirely by sight. And based on what he sees, this is a bad deal. So he says, no thank you. No, No way. I can't do this. But notice we see a very different response from Boaz. Boaz here, we've already seen, is walking by faith. See, God had given this instruction to His people about the redemption of widows for purpose and for reason. And and God, we know throughout the Scripture, God loves the widow. He cares for the widow. He calls His people to take care of the widow. And so here in this situation, God's heart is that there be a Redeemer for Ruth. And the indication would be that, that, that Boaz, as he's walking by faith, he's trusting in the Lord, and he understands that may very well be a role that God wants him to play, and he desires to play. He is walking by faith. As I've already noted, Mr. So-and-so, he's not. He, he is wanting to preserve his name, and yet today we don't even know it. Boaz is willing to risk his name, and today it's written in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus. What a contrast between these two men. And so Boaz here is walking by faith. But notice this. In order for Boaz to walk by faith, he has to put his trust in God no matter how things work out. Boaz has no guarantee when he goes to the gate that he's going to be able to redeem Ruth. In fact, the text indicates to us all the way back in chapter 3 that Boaz is understanding that this other redeemer might redeem Ruth. And so Boaz's desire is to redeem her, to marry her. That's his plan. He goes to the gate because of his plan. But he understands that God's plan may be different than his plan. Notice what he says back in Ruth chapter 3, verse 13. He tells Ruth about this nearer redeemer. If he will redeem you, good. 
let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Now that word good in the Hebrew means it is well. So, so Boaz, you hear what he's saying here? He, he's saying, listen, my, my plan, my desire would be to marry you. But if this other who has the right marries you, it's well. I mean, it's as if hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands of years, before Horatio Spafford would write that hymn that we sing today, It Is Well, Boaz is already singing it. His lot has already taught him to say, It is well, it is well with his soul. He is trusting in the Lord. He has His plan, but he understands His plan may not be God's plan. And so no matter how this works out, he's saying, it'll be well, it'll be good. I'm going to trust in God. And so this continues as he goes to the gate there in chapter 4. He says the same thing. If you're going to redeem her, you redeem her. But if not, I will. And this tells us something about Boaz's faith. About he trusted, how he trusted in the plan of God even when that plan might be different than his plan. And I think it, it brings us to an important question for ourselves. Do we trust God's plan? Especially when it's different than our plans. I mean, the fundamental question is, how do you know God's plan? <laughs> and many times we, we don't. There are things that God explicitly tells us in the Scripture. Do this, don't do this. And so if your question is, uh, should I do this thing that Scripture forbids? God's plan would be, no, don't do it. God's Word's clear. But there are other times when we have two choices before us, two decisions, two paths we can take. And, and morally, they're equal. And in both cases, we can praise God and we can glorify God. And we don't know which one's His plan. And what the walk of faith is, is trusting God. God, give me discernment, give me wisdom, but Lord, help me no matter which way I go to trust in You, no matter how this works out. And that seems to be the indication with Boaz. I mean, Boaz has a preference. Boaz wants to marry Ruth. Boaz's plan is to redeem her, and yet he understands that he may go to that gate, and this other may say, well, no, I'm going to do it. And then he finds his plan was not God's plan. And Boaz says to that, Ahead of time, I will trust in God. Friends, do you trust in God when things go radically different than you thought they would? That is what the walk of faith looks like. That is what it means to trust in the Lord. To say to the Lord God, no matter how this works out, no matter what may come, no, no matter what my lot I will trust in you and it will be well if my trust is in the Lord Jesus. And so Boaz is able to walk by faith. He has this trust. And so maybe today you're saying, well, I want that, but how, how do you get that kind of trust? How do you get to that place where you have this walk of faith? And that brings us to the second point there in your outline. How do we get this? Well, we remember, point two, we remember God's faithfulness and we look ahead to God's promises. We remember God's faithfulness, and we look ahead to God's promises. 
And so Boaz here at the gate, he, he makes this deal. Mr. So-and-so says, well, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. He, he's walking entirely by sight. Boaz is walking by faith and says, well, well, I'm going to do that. And so they enter into this transaction. Verse 7 and 8 tell us that, that this redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, he takes the sandal off his foot and he throws it to Boaz. Now this is the part where you're like, well, there's got to be something here, right? I spent hours researching this. This is what I came up with. R.C. Sproul says it this way. Little is known about the symbolism of this custom. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I mean, the indication in the text is that even when Ruth is written, the people don't understand this. That this was a bizarre custom that had already gone by the wayside. People didn't even do this now because the writer is saying to us, well, well this is how they used to do things. Now, they don't do it this way anymore, but why did they do it? Well, we don't know all the details other than this sealed the deal. This was legally binding. But today, handshake will do. Don't throw your shoe. Sound like Matt making a rhyme there. Well, we don't know the reasons other than we know this was a legally binding agreement and now Boaz can redeem Ruth. But before he will do it, notice they will give him a blessing. Verse 11. The elders and the witnesses gather around him and they give him this blessing. May the Lord make Ruth like Rachel and Leah. If you know those names, you know their stories. These were women that at one time were barren until God opened up their wombs. And through them and through their servants, we have the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so these elders, these witnesses are saying to Boaz, we, we've heard about Ruth in her barrenness. And our prayer is that God would so do for her as He did for Rachel and Leah and that He would bless her and bless you with descendants. And oh, how God will do that. And then they continue in this verse 12. They say, may, God, uh, may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, if you know this story, this is not a shining moment in Israel's history. It's a pretty messed up moment. But what it involves is a woman who becomes a widow and doesn't have a child, and there's this call there for a redeemer to step in so that she can have a child. And all types of immorality and crazy stuff takes place, but ultimately she has a child. Children, in fact. And the people, as they give this blessing, I think what they're saying to Boaz and what they're saying about Ruth is may God open up her barren womb and may God use this tragic situation involving a widow with no children in order to bring glory to His name. May He work in your life like He worked in the lives of so many. That they're telling Boaz, if, if you want to trust God right now, if you want to walk with God right now, then look back at what God has faithfully done in the past and look ahead to what God will faithfully do in the future. And so how do we have faith today when things don't go as we planned? I mean, some of you today are in a situation that if I had told you a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, you would be in, you would never have imagined this. You, you have suffered terrible loss. Things have not gone as you thought they would. How can you walk by faith in the midst of a situation where things do not go anywhere close to how you imagined they would go? 
where you suffer immeasurable losses. We learn to walk by faith by looking to the Word of God and the treasure before us because in it we find those we can identify with and the losses they have suffered and we see how God is faithful. Some of you have had promises broken to you. Vows were made and vows were broken. Others of you have broken promises to others. Vows were made and you broke them. We open up the Word of God and we find both those who have had vows broken against them and both those who have broken vows, we find how God is faithful even in the midst of our faithlessness. Some of you have been falsely accused. You've been lied about. You've been slandered. And we open up the pages of Scripture and we find those who have been lied about and they have been slandered and we see how in the midst of that, God is faithful. Some of you have suffered horrible losses. I remember years ago, the first time I sat and talked with someone who had lost a child. I picture it like it was yesterday. I'll never forget these words this mother said. She said, parents aren't supposed to bury their children. What do we say to that? We open up the pages of Scripture. And we look at how the very first parents buried their child. And it doesn't stop there. And we see how time after time, tragedy after tragedy, suffering blow after suffering blow, tragic loss after tragic loss, God is faithful. And we cling to the faithfulness of God, not just because of what He has done, but because of what He will do. And we walk through the pages of Scripture And we see there are parents who buried a child. We see there are sisters who mourned at the tomb of their brother. And God was faithful. We see how there are parents who bring their sick, suffering children before the Lord Jesus and how God is faithful. And we are reminded that He is still faithful today. And we are instructed to look ahead to the promises He has made to us. What are those promises? Well, the Scripture scripture's filled with them. I'll point you towards just a couple today. Matthew chapter 5. In the Beatitudes there on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn. Some of you today, you're mourning. And you're grieving. And the world around you says, well, well, there are stages to grief. And there, if you read this book or if you go through this program and you're looking at that stuff and you're going, I'm just grieving. I'm sitting fixing it. I'm overwhelmed. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. Said that there's a there's a day coming. He, he offers comfort now. He offers peace now. But he said there's a day coming when you will experience comfort you, you cannot imagine. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
I mean, do you ever turn on the news, see it on the internet there, open up the paper, and, and, and all of a sudden you just feel sickened by the lostness and the wickedness of the world. And you read headlines, you're like, I, I wish I never even saw the headline. I can't imagine how terrible the story is. And, and there's this hunger, there's this thirst in you for, for that to go away. And there's this hunger and this thirst for things to be made right and for there to be justice and, and righteousness and, and light to overcome the darkness. God says there's, there's a blessing to that hunger and that thirst because there's a day you're going to be satisfied. You're not going to be satisfied now because there's wickedness everywhere. But you're going to be satisfied one day, Jesus says, that is to come. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Have you ever been persecuted for doing the right thing? Has your name ever been slandered, lied about, because you did that which was right? Are you aware that there are people in the world today whose persecution is, is more like this because they take a stand for the Gospel, they may die? In recent weeks, gunmen have walked into Nigerian churches and because people have sang songs involving the name of the Lord Jesus, they have killed them, men, women, and children, by the hundreds. Jesus says, blessed, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see what Jesus does here? The Scripture tells us to look back. Look at God's faithfulness. But Jesus says also, friend, look ahead. Look ahead to the day when I'm making all things new. Revelation 21. is a passage that I come to often. There were times and periods in my life where I read this every hour throughout the day. Because again, it reminds us of what is coming. This is the vision God gives to the Apostle John, Revelation 21, and he says, Then I saw, this is what's to come, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Have you ever felt distance from God in your suffering? Have you been tempted to think God's not listening to you, that God has abandoned you? John says, look, look what's coming. Here's God, the, the dwelling place of God is with me. Just, just like it was in the garden before the fall, there He was with Adam and Eve. One day, there He would be with us in a new heaven and a new earth. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God will be with them as their God. What will He do? He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and they are true. Do you believe those words, friend? Do you believe that that day is coming that this is what we hold on to this is how we walk by faith this is how we trust by 
trust in God. We, we look back on what God has faithfully done. We look ahead at what God has promised to do. And then we step out in faith and trust Him that even if things do not go as I desired them to go, I will sing, it is well. And so the, the elders, the witnesses, they're, they're, they're gathering around Boaz. They're, they're reminding him to look back. But here's the thing about Boaz. He doesn't have to look that far back. He doesn't need to look all the way back to, to Rachel and to Leah and Tamar and Judah and Perez. He can look back to the home he was raised in. Matthew chapter 1. Do you remember who Boaz's mother and father are? His father was Salmon. His mother was Rahab. You remember Rahab's story? Rahab was born outside of the people of God. She was a prostitute. Her life was consumed by wickedness. She worshipped false gods, false idols. And then the day comes when these spies come into the land that that God has brought them into that they're going to conquer. And Rahab has heard the stories of this God. And Rahab is willing to put her trust and her hope and her faith not not in the idols that she was raised to believe in, not in the false gods that she was taught to worship. She's willing to put her, her hope and her trust in the one true God of Israel. So much so that she puts everything on the line to hide these spies. And through doing this, God preserves her and her family. We read in Joshua chapter 6 that Rahab's family then goes with the people of God. They camp outside of the camp. Why? Because they're from this wicked place. They're not a part of the people of God. But then within that same chapter, we see how Rahab then is brought into the people of God. And we see in Matthew chapter 1 that Rahab marries into the people of God. Here's this woman who was born outside of God's family who is brought in. Who's this woman who came from a life of worshiping false idols and false gods who's brought in to worship the one true God? Maybe when Boaz sees Ruth and hears her story, he can't help but think about his mama and his father. The Scripture doesn't tell us very much about Salmon other than we know he was faithful to marry this woman who I'm sure many people had concerns about her past, much like people had concerns about Ruth and her past. And in seeing this faithfulness in his own home and seeing this faithfulness in his mother who's brought into the faith, perhaps that's all Boaz needed to see the faithfulness of God. He saw it in his home growing up. He trusted that it would continue in the home that he would now have with Ruth. Just a side note here, another benefit at looking at the faithfulness of God is the reminder that God will use the most unlikely of candidates to accomplish His purposes. You don't have to have your life all together to be used by God. Amen? If that were the case, I don't know who your preacher would be, but it wouldn't be me. We don't have to have it all together. We, we don't have to come from this pedigree of faithfulness. We, we don't have to have this great track record of faithfulness. God has a pattern throughout His Word of using the most unlikely of candidates and bringing them into His household and using them for His glory. And it happens when they will place their faith and their trust in God and His redemptive work. 
So you don't have to have it all together, but you need to have saving faith in the Lord Jesus. And that brings us to this point of application, point three. We need to place our faith in Jesus Christ who is our kinsman redeemer. See, this is the true story that's being told in the book of Ruth. It's pointing us towards Christ. See, like Ruth, we were born into wickedness. Scripture says, Romans 3.23, that we have all sinned and fall short of God's glory. There is a separation that exists between God and us because of our sin. We are outside the camp. We are in the land of Moab. We are in the wilderness. We are separated because of our sin. Just like Ruth was. The Scripture also tells us that we're in a pretty hopeless situation because of our sin, much like Ruth. Here she was in Moab. She marries this Israelite, Malon. He dies. Before he dies, it appears that they may have been married up to ten years. She's barren. She can't have children. She is in a hopeless situation. The Scripture says of us, Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death that we rightly deserve the wrath of God for our sin. And there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And so like Ruth, we need a redeemer. Ruth needed someone who would redeem her. That's what Boaz is doing here. He is the kinsman redeemer. We too need a redeemer. The Scripture tells us of Jesus, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. He is our Redeemer. But listen, He, he doesn't wait for us to come to His fields. He comes to us. He comes to Moab. He goes after us in our wickedness. He doesn't just go to the gate and throw a shoe to make a deal. He goes outside of the gate, the Scripture says, to a hill called Calvary, goes to the cross, and dies in our place that we might be redeemed. He pays the penalty that you and I deserve for our sin. And there we have this great exchange Where Jesus dies in our place for our sin, He takes the wrath of God that we deserve. And if we will repent and place our trust in Him, then what we receive is the righteousness of Christ and this full inheritance of God that we do not deserve. He takes what we deserved. He gives us what we do not deserve. And His command to us is that we would repent and trust in Him. And that's what our kinsman redeemer has done, and that is what he's called us to do. We're going to pause here in chapter 4 and pick up in it next week, but you probably know the rest of the story. If not, I'll just spoil it for you now. Very next verse, Moaz marries Ruth. And they have a child, and we'll talk more about how God will, will use that to culminate this great story in salvation history. But just imagine for me a second a different ending. What if Boaz had gone through all of this trouble at the gate and he had made this deal with Mr. So-and-so and shoes have been exchanged and the deal is done and now he is the one who can redeem Ruth. Imagine if he were to go to Ruth in that moment and say to her all that had transpired and she were to look to him and say, eh, I think I've changed my mind. <laughs> you know, 
I've thought this over, and I'm, I'm just not sure I want you to be my redeemer. And maybe, I, maybe I need to meet Mr. So-and-so. Or, you know, I did pretty good when I was gleaning in the fields. I never expected to get that much. Maybe, maybe I can just kind of redeem myself. Maybe I can take care of Naomi on my own. Maybe I can come up with some other means. I imagine if that were how the story ended, we would read it and want to yell through the pages, Ruth, what are you thinking? How foolish of you. Turn from your foolishness. Marry this Redeemer. Embrace the providence of God and the work He is doing in your life, Ruth. How foolish it would be for you to neglect such a great offer of redemption. And yet, we do it every day. We look to that which God has provided us in Christ. And we say, well, I can do better on my own. Or, well, I know that's on the table but I just want to kind of do some things and enjoy life for a while. And I'll come back to that later. And in our foolishness, we think that maybe somehow we can redeem ourselves or maybe we can just come back to that later on. And just as foolish as it would be for Ruth to push Boaz away at this point, we push this offer and this grace and this mercy of God away. And God in His grace towards us still holds out that wing and he invites us to come underneath it will you do that friend will you trust in him today if you would stand and pray with me Father, as we read Ruth's story, I pray that we would see our story. I pray that we would see your story. There's a clear picture here of a kinsman redeemer, of, of the one who rescues and the one who redeems. And Lord, that, that points us towards the cross of Christ. And yet, Lord, there are some here who likely, they've seen that, they've heard that but they've never fully trusted in You. That there is likely someone here today, Lord, who, who thinks they're okay. Who, who thinks they can put this off. Who thinks they can just wait and, and do whatever it is they think is, is going to bring them so much joy in this world. That the pleasures of sin. And they think, well, I'll just do this for a while and I'll, I'll come back to that later on. Oh, Lord, how deceived they are. Lord, I pray that they would see what Your Word says, that today is the day of salvation. I pray they would heed the warning that we're not to neglect so great a salvation that's been offered to us. And I pray, Lord, that they would see that this isn't just an option to consider. The Gospel is a command for us to obey. And Lord, if they will not obey it, I pray You would make it as clear as possible to them in their heart that they are disobedient outside of Your plan, outside of Your will, destined to an eternal hell under Your wrath. And that they would not sleep until that becomes so real for them that they turn to the hope that only comes through Christ and Christ alone. The redemption that comes through Christ and Christ alone. 
Lord, I pray for others here who have indeed turned to Christ. They've trusted in Christ. But Lord, they may be struggling. They may be mourning and grieving. They may be wrestling with this issue of your plan being different than their plan. I pray, God, they be reminded. I pray that they've already been reminded of your faithfulness throughout your word. And that you will do what you said you would do. That there is a day coming where the blind will see and the deaf will hear and the lame will walk and the dead will rise in Christ and we will dwell with Him for all eternity. Would you set our hearts on that promise? Would you set our hope on that day? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.